Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University. Professor Kaplan is the author of multiple books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times, as well as Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids and The Case Against Education, forthcoming in 2017 from Princeton University Press. He's also a blogger at EconLog. Professor Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. You know, given the electoral spectacle that we've just been through, it seems like a perfect time to talk about the rationality of voters. And you, of course, literally wrote the book or, well, at least a book on this, uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter, which I liked so much I've actually used it in a number of my classes. Uh, well, bless your heart. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a provocative title, and you certainly don't pull any punches in the book. Uh, right off, you state that the central idea is that voters are worse than ignorant. They are, in a word, irrational and vote accordingly. And a couple of questions come to mind for me, at least, right at this point. Um, first off, why do you think it's worse to be irrational than ignorant? And second, how did you reach the conclusion that voters are, in fact, irrational. Right. So why it's worse to be rational than ignorant? Uh, it just comes down to this. If you're ignorant, you can use common sense to protect yourself from most of the bad consequences. So for example, if someone sends you a spam email and says, give me a million dollars, an ignorant person can just use common sense and say, well, I don't know who this person is. Seems unlikely that this, that this person's giving me a pile of free money. So until they convince me otherwise, no. Or if you're walking by a used car lot, as someone who's ignorant of the quality of the cars, when you see a sign saying best cars in the world for lowest prices, can again use common sense and say, well, I can't really verify this. I'd expect them at all say this kind of stuff. So it doesn't convince me. But on the other hand, if you're irrational, right, if you're the kind of person who just goes with your gut when you decide what to believe, then common sense goes out the window and then you might believe all kinds of ridiculous things without this uh, common sense to put a break on your errors. So uh, now on, on the question of you know, how I reached it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess the easy answer is observing human beings. Right. And especially when people talk about politics and just seeing how agitated and unreasonable they get, how prone people are to hyperbole. I think a lot of it for me personally was learning economics in my senior year of high school and just reading all these things that seemed to go so much against everything I'd ever been taught by, or by any adult, by any teacher, and saying, wow, it's what I'm reading in these books that make sense and what everybody else says that makes no sense at all. You know, things just as simple as if you raise the price of low-skilled workers, people will hire fewer low-skilled workers. That's an idea I never heard in my entire life until I was 17 and saw it in an economics book. Uh, so just putting putting all this together. And then, of course, when researching the book, I learned about much more systematic evidence. So we can talk about that if you want. But uh, that's really my story where I came to this. So on the ignorance versus irrationality thing, are you saying in the sense that there's a I guess there's a fix, there's a cure for ignorance and that's common sense and perhaps mm -hmm. combined with more more data, more information. Mm -hmm. But right. There's not really that sort of easy or simple fix for irrationality. 
Well, what I say is that when you're rational, often you just want to be that way and you're not interested in facts or reasons or anything else. So you're sort of locked in a self-perpetuating cycle of error, whereas ignorance is the kind of thing that can be fixed if you see the need to fix it. You know, I mean, another great example of how ignorance plus common sense still lead, leads to good outcomes uh, you know, so in general, in the world, you often can't watch what everybody is doing. Someone is supposed to be working for you or working your interest. You can't follow them every every minute of the day. But what you can do is if you catch them, you can punish them very harshly. So if you catch the kid stealing cookies, catch the kid lying, then you can punish the child very harshly and say, well, in that case, there's no television for a month for that lie. So even though you can't actually monitor the child 24-7 – Still, as long as once in a while you catch them, there is a way of giving incentives to get good behavior. Right. Whereas if you're just being irrational, then you know I'm, I believe Joey. Whatever Joey says, I believe. Uh, I don't know. The, uh, the reference may be lost, but sure. uh, that was Joey Buttafuoco's wife during the Joey Buttafuoco scandal yeah. 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, I believe Joey. Why do you believe Joey? I just believe him. Well, if you get yourself into that kind of a mindset, then there's really no way that you're going to get out because you aren't applying the common sense that you need to navigate the world of imperfect information. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. You know, a lot of people, though, believe in a, a notion that sometimes referred to as the wisdom of the crowd, this yes. idea – uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it for, for our listeners that even if any individual person might be irrational, even deeply irrational, that these irrationalities are going to probably cancel out if you have a long enough group. And so the final decision that the group reaches, and that's whether it's you know guessing the number of Skittles in a mason jar or choosing a president, that it's going to be pretty close to the right or the optimal decision. So What's your what's your view of that wisdom of crowds uh, uh, viewpoint? When I say it's totally an empirical question, it could be true, it could be false, or it could be true in some cases and false in others. A lot of what I've done in my data work is just find lots of cases uh, in the area of economics where people who don't know what they're talking about have systematically different views from people who do. So the wisdom of crowds is fine if you have a random error where you're equally likely to overestimate the Skittles or underestimate the Skittles. But if there is some reason that just inclines you to think there are tons of Skittles, and this is, this is the normal thing, the normal way people are, then the wisdom of crowds doesn't save you at all. It actually does, really, really does nothing for you except save you from the most extreme overestimators. Um, so, I mean, you're simulating there, and there are many cases, of course, where there is a systematic bias built in. So a classic one is people overestimate how good they are at everything. Right. So people estimate how popular am I, how successful am I, how competent am I. Uh, there is an infamous study of professors finding that essentially 100% of professors think that they are more productive than the typical professor in their department. Yes, I, All right, I'm well aware of that true. one. <laughs> but, but there's a very good story about why the wisdom of crowds doesn't help us here, which is that each person tends to overestimation because that is the emotionally gratifying view uh, in uh, some of my later blog posts, I uh, really spend a lot of time thinking about what psychologists call social desirability bias. This is our tendency to want to believe stuff that sounds good, even when what sounds good is ridiculous or just not very likely. And so again, you know, like so, believing that investing in our nation's children will help will help the future. Right. That sounds really good. Doesn't make it true. Right. Could be that investing in our nation's children is futile. Could be that it works, but only not enough to justify the cost. 
And human beings are just not emotionally inclined to accept those more pessimistic stories. Right. In fact, in The Myth of the Rational Voter, you actually talk about it at length at four of the systematic biases that people have, at least in terms of their economic thinking. Uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned anti-market bias, anti-foreign bias, make-work bias, and pessimistic bias. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could briefly explain uh, what those biases are and, and why they matter. Sure. If you go to YouTube, there's cartoon versions of me explaining all of them, which is probably more entertaining. Than oh, this. Well, I'll have to not, put a link not, up to that, but, definitely. But a uh, quick version. So anti-market bias, uh, normal human beings, psychologically normal human beings tend to underestimate the social benefits of the market mechanism because they think about how people in business are greedy rather than focusing on that they have an incentive to go and make their customers happy. Uh, anti-foreign bias, people tend to get especially nervous and pessimistic when they think about the effects of interacting with foreigners, especially economic effects. Uh, make-work bias, people tend to uh, to measure how well economy is doing based on employment rather than production. And then pessimistic bias, people just tend to see a world in decline that's bad now and it's going to get worse. And again, what I do in the book is I go over a lot of statistical evidence just showing that there are systematic belief differences between economists and the public, between more and less educated people. I mean, other people are showing that just smarter people are less subject to these biases than not so smart people. You know, these are all things that appeal to people who really don't know what they're talking about. You know, just for one example, out of people who can correctly explain the textbook economics argument for free trade, I'd say 90% believe in free trade. Right. Out of people who could not explain it, I'd say 90% believe in protectionism. So there's something about not understanding the subject that inclines you to a particular answer. And, and in this case, it is foreigners bad, economic interaction with foreigners bad. They're trying to rip us off or worse. Right. And naturally, I immediately think about the, the recent presidential election where mm-hmm. it seems like a number of these themes came up. But, uh, you know, I mean, right now. Else? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, right now we're, we're still waiting for all of the exit poll data to come in. But it seems pretty clear that Donald Trump did considerably better among uh, less educated voters. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, I mean, do you, yeah, did a you claim see that was denied early, early on in the, in the year, but then eventually became completely obvious that he was drawing support from people who really don't know what they're, what they're talking about. Right. And a, and a huge part of Donald Trump's platform is, is, you know, uh, anti-free trade, whereas Hillary Clinton is, I, I think, perhaps less anti-free trade yes. and was more of a pander on her part because, of course, she was for a lot of tree, free trade before she was against it. Um, and so uh, do you think that this, that, that a lot of these biases played into the, the, the great appeal of Donald Trump? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, there's that plus his personality, which uh, obviously appeals to a lot of people. But yeah, so scapegoating foreigners is uh, very appealing to people. It's you know, psychologically normal human beings all over the world like blaming their problems on foreigners. Uh, you know, so there's people in other countries blaming their poor problems on us, just like we're blaming our problems on them. Again, it could be right, could be wrong, but a big lesson of economics is that it's generally wrong that the main effect of us trading with foreigners is that we enrich ourselves as they, as they enrich themselves. Of course, with some distributional effects, as always, but the same goes for uh, advances in technology. You know, Uber is putting taxi drivers out of work, and uh, driverless cars will put Uber drivers out of work. So the key thing to understand is that without progress, we're still back in the Stone Age, so it's right. all worth it. Uh, you know, by, you know, by the way, on the question of, econ- of uh, education, 
So again, like the tempting answer for people, for people, especially economists, is always say, well, it's not that the educated know less, or the less educated know less. It's that they have different interests. So less educated people are more likely to have been hurt by free trade or by immigration or whatever. Uh, in the data that I have, we can actually test this theory because we've got data on both people's education and their income. So again, it's really what you think would be the low-income people right. that would be suffering from competition. It's not just that not that having low education hurts you. If you're a low-education millionaire, then you know, the free trade is clearly good for you. Or similarly, if you are a high-education taxi driver, then uh, probably immigration is bad for you. Right. Uh, but what we can do with the data is just use very standard statistics, and we can see that it's the education, not the income, that is driving these patterns. Hmm. Or actually, in this other paper that I have on intelligence, we can actually see that very often it is intelligence rather than education or income that's driving the patterns. It's just smart people understand economics and not so smart people don't. Um, so as a professor, I can get away with doing what people are not supposed to do, which is to say that people who, uh, people who voted for Trump are xenophobic and so on. And I think that's exactly true. Of right. course they're xenophobic. And you know, plenty of Hillary Clinton voters are xenophobic too. I don't think this well, human beings are xenophobic. Sure. It's hardly surprising that you can do well with a xenophobic platform. Um, you know, and this is something you know, that uh, – you know, so I'm not sure if you mentioned the publication date of the book, but 2007 – Sort of every time there's a, you know, basically the day after every major election, there's always about 48% of the population that suddenly gets interested in my work because yeah. they're kind of lost. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is not that your side was right and something weird happened and you're supposed to win. Mm -hmm. My point is really that every single election, irrationality wins. It always wins. Yeah. In uh, sometimes in more severe forms, but to think that there's ever election where reason prevailed is crazy. Sure. You know, I, well, one thing I wanted to, to follow up on, on that is uh, it, it seems to me that well, one argument I've heard is that a lot of people who are not economically literate don't believe in what are sometimes called win-win scenarios. And I sure, sure. mentioned free trade. And it, it mm -hmm. seems to me that at least a lot of Donald Trump's platform, for instance, was all about getting a better deal and that essentially that we're dealing with a, a zero-sum world. And sure, sure. now economists, right, would not necessarily see things that way. Of course. I mean, you know, so of course in the real world, once in a while, there's a zero-sum situation, but normally win-win is the right way to approach the world, to think about ways that you can make both parties to a transaction better off. That's the way that if you're growing a business, you don't think about how can I screw over my customers. You think how can I make them want to come back? How can I make them happy? Right. Uh, you know, there's you know, I, I think I think there's a, there's a Korean grocery store area where they had there where you know they had this ad which I think was just taken straight from Korea and then translated, but it was, you know, it was big smiley faces and it said you know, when you left the store it said if you're happy we're happy. Right. right? That is the positive sun mentality that economists try to teach people about it. Again, it doesn't come naturally to us. And especially when the people that we're dealing with are different from us, like foreigners, then this deep, deep-seated suspicion, why are they really selling us stuff? It couldn't be because they want to help us. You know, of course, the economist's answer is, well, it's not because they want to help you, but rather, you know, they want to help themselves, but the way they help themselves is by helping you. So really just as good. Right. All the way back to Adam Smith. I mean, sure. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yes. Not from benevolence as the baker baked his bread, but from his own regard to his own self-interest. Exactly the line I was thinking of, yeah. Um, do you think that – you mentioned that irrationality never really wins, but do you think that things have become worse recently? I mean, especially now, so many people seem to be getting their news from these, you know, kind of filter-bubbled, highly questionable mm -hmm. social media sites. Do you think, do you think mm -hmm. it makes irrationality – do you think it makes it 
more difficult to think well and rationally about these issues? I think it's especially bad this year. I don't see any big long-run trend. I mean, remember, if you think about the whole last century, we've got communism, we've got fascism. So if you put that into your data, then I don't think you're going to see a, a pattern of things getting worse over time. Uh, sort of you know, the, the complaint about people living, you know, people living in their bubble and not getting outside information – yeah, so in the 60s and 70s, you just would have gotten ABC, NBC, CBS. So I see that as a pretty crummy bubble too. Um, you're more respectable, more you know, like more dignified, but still, I'll uh, just you know, like three versions of the same crummy story. So I mm-hmm. was, wouldn't say I was too happy then. Um, you know, I think you know now you see more extremes. You'll see Nazis on Twitter and things like that. So whereas you there wasn't a Nazi channel in the 60s no. or 70s. Uh, but you know, always important to remember how few people are actually paying attention to the worst things that you can find on the internet, which sure. are pretty horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. I mean, the conventional wisdom, I think, is that citizens should really try to make an effort to become informed voters. And mm-hmm. but for a long time, uh, social scientists have you know argued that well, in a, in a way, it's actually irrational for the average voter to become well-informed because, well, voters are mainly ignorant and that ignorance actually makes sense. It's rational. And I'm wondering if you agree with this, that idea that in a sense, at at least at the individual level, that Mm -hmm. it's rational to be ignorant. Yeah. So it's rational if you're selfish. That's the key. So you can be a rational altruist. You could spend your day carefully scrutinizing the numbers for the best way to save lives. And that's still rational. It's just that your motivation is altruistic. But if you were, but if you were selfish, as almost all human beings are to a high degree, combined with rational, then of course, yes, it makes it makes very little sense to learn much about politics because like there's very little in it for you. What happens if you vote the uh, you know so you know what happens if, if you vote for the thing you don't want rather than the thing you do want? Almost nothing because the same thing that would have happened anyway. Uh, right you know today, a lot of people who claimed uh, that every vote vote mattered yesterday are seeing, wow, turn out my vote didn't matter, just like every other single time that has ever happened. Right. Um, now, you know, if you multiply the benefits by seven billion, then you know, altruistically it might make sense to vote. You know, this depends upon a bunch of other factors, like do you live in a swing state and how much do you really know anyway, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm a big fan of my friend Jason Brennan's book, uh, The Ethics of Voting, uh, where he talks about the uh, you know the conditions so conditions under which uh, voting is praiseworthy. So he does you know so he does advise people if you're going to be selfish and not and not figure out what's going on, then please don't vote. And that's really a public service. Right. Um, you know the unfortunate thing is people have the idea that they should vote even when they don't know what they're doing. I guess you know the other thing worth pointing out is usually political scientists think of information as just very narrow factual questions like how did each candidate vote on which issue or what are their stances on different issues. Whereas I, I think we should have a much broader view that includes understanding a social science, understanding things mm-hmm. like how much would would it, would, empl- would, uh, would employment fall if the minimum wage were increased to fifteen dollars. Right. It's not the kind of thing that people normally expect you to know, but it's the kind of thing you should know if you're voting on the minimum wage. So, so do you think, in a way, the fact that an individual vote doesn't really count for that much, and, and at a certain level, maybe people understand that, gives oh, sure. them, in a way, license to. Uh, essentially uh, vote uh, with their emotions, with their gut and not, you know, I, I think when people, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, so, so I mean, you get two things. It means that people vote their conscience, but they don't think about their conscience at all. 
Right. So right. it's very common for you know for rich people to vote for a candidate that will raise their taxes, and that's really cheap when you vote because it's not like you're like you're going to change the outcome. It's not like voting for a candidate that will raise your taxes. Is not like writing a check to charity at all. Right. They're totally different because voting to raise your taxes normally doesn't cost you anything. In fact, essentially, it never cost you. It will, it will never cost you anything. Uh, but at the same time, it also means that people don't have an incentive to think things through. So their reasoning, uh, if you want to call it that, very emotionally. So you get self-righteous emotionalism, which uh, I have another paper arguing that's really the worst possible thing. It would be way better if people were just rational and selfish when they voted because at least then policies would benefit somebody. Right. So, so in a way, though, that there is then a, a benefit people get from voting is they get to feel good. They get to support yeah, yeah, exactly. of course. Yeah. their person and the downside of, of, of uh, is pretty low there in, in one sense. And so in, in that way, it kind of makes sense that people would, you know, would do what they do and, and not necessarily yeah. be well informed. Because as we know, it's uh, it's difficult. It takes a lot of time. It can be kind of boring. To, to, I mean, you not not only to not be well informed, but not but to lack minimal intellectual self discipline. So, right. a big concept I talk about in my book is what I call rational irrationality, which is just not performing basic mental hygiene when you're thinking about politics because there's so little in it for you personally. Right. Easier just to go with your gut, uh, and uh, apparently very pleasant for people. I will say, I still have the uh, I my, I still have the view that most people would be happier if they just were a if they were they were just apolitical. Because the joy that you get from winning is just a lot less than the misery you get from losing, yeah. and people lose about half the time. So I think that if people were really planning out their lives in a thoughtful way and were thinking about their own happiness, that they would just not want to be have anything to do with politics because the high the high highs are not nearly as good not nearly as good as the low lows are bad. No, there are, there are millions of people who would agree with you uh, today. That's for sure. Uh, after yeah. this election, you know, a, a lot of people believe that more and better uh, civic education, education in government, education in, in, in economics uh, is a really uh, possible thing, is a great potential solution for what they see as a lot of the problems with the mm-hmm. electorate. And okay, as someone who teaches political science, I, you know, I, there's certainly an interest in there for me and I could support that on a, you know, in a selfish way. But do you think it would end up doing something like that, mandatory American government, mandatory economics? Do you think it would end up making a positive difference for the for the country as a whole? Not much. Uh, we already have a lot of data on this. So the typical American high school student has to do three years of social studies, thereabouts. And when you go and, and, uh, and quiz adults on how much they know about American politics, they know next to nothing. So we already have a system where people are doing two or three years of mandatory education and they seem to know next to nothing. Uh, there's a you know, bunch of things going on here. So one is probably the teaching wasn't very good in the first place. But another problem is people just forget stuff that they don't really need to know. Right. Uh, so I actually have a, a um, one of my most moderate reformist proposals is – just every year to have a national test of political knowledge that you are free to take if you want to. And if you get a good score, you get some money. Wow. Yeah. So it gives people so, much more of an incentive to be to be rational or at least yes, to think yes. about and, these and, things. And, and, and at least to inform themselves in particular, it gives people an incentive to retain knowledge because every year you can retake the test for money. And it also gives people an incentive to find better ways of learning because I think it's very likely that standard classroom techniques are a terrible way to learn stuff. 
Sure. I homeschool my older kids. And when I look at the way that I teach them, when I really want them to learn something versus the way that I teach my college students, when I'm just going with the flow, it's totally different. So right. when I won't teach my kids, I don't lecture them. Lecturing lecturing is a terrible way to teach people. Right. But, you know, uh, but, you know like instead I make my kids, my, my sons, they have to learn by doing. Here's some problems. Work the problems. Let's go through the problems. That's how people really learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I teach my classes, I do lecturing. Is you know, like students wouldn't like it if I actually tried to make them learn stuff, or if I made them come to my office and get feedback, and, you know, and they certainly wouldn't appreciate it, even if they tolerate it. Yeah, and of course, it would be a really difficult thing to do in a in a survey class of a hundred or two hundred students yeah, as well. There'd so, be some. Yeah, you know, like, like you know, if you really wanted them to learn, then you know, then you know, like you could quiz. You could you could still do a quiz every day. And you know, even if it were multiple choice with Scantron, I think that'd be be a big improvement. There's right. actually a lot of evidence from educational psychology that, despite complaining about testing, testing is one of the most effective ways we have to getting people to learn. It mm-hmm. just gets people focused, even if it doesn't count for anything. It seems like just the very fact of you're told you failed, you're a failure, learn, shape up. Right. That helps learning. You know, I, if the if the public is kind of systematically irrational on, on the economic issues that, that you've you've found and I'm sure on a number of other issues. And and politicians listen to the public and give them what they want, uh, it seems the conclusion would be that, well, the results are likely to not be so great. And so does this mean then that a politician who truly cares about the future of the country has to, well, inevitably lie to the public. I mean, in, in one of the WikiLeaks releases, Hillary Clinton seemed to kind of suggest that when she said, at least allegedly said, that you have to have a public position on issues and a private position on issues. I mean, do you, do you think she was onto something there? Well, I mean, so I think that, that essentially every politician has public and private issues. So yeah, they, they're all liars. Uh, there's their defense of there's good lying and bad lying. I think you know, that uh, as to what's really going on, I think that probably a lot of the lying is just bad lying and it's just for personal political gain and doesn't accomplish much. But yeah, I can see that if someone had good views but wanted to get elected, then one of their better strategies is just to lie and then do not do what they said. Um, you know, or you know, I think a lot, a lot of times to go and just do a token thing in favor of what you claimed and then do something totally different in substance. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, you know, so what I would say is that. Politicians you know, generally do have some slack, I mean, especially the more people like your personality, the more you can probably get away with in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. So you know, so I mean, Reagan, I think he had a lot of policies that probably most Americans didn't like, but he just he's the he's you know he's the gipper, you know, he's he's this lovable guy, uh, you know, he's got a voice smooth as silk, and so you know, people put up with stuff from him that they wouldn't have put up with from say Bob Dole, who. Uh, is scary. Very different guy, yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking specifically, for instance, about uh, – we talked a little bit about free trade earlier. Uh, Hillary Clinton, yeah, for much of her career, was a strong proponent of free trade, mm-hmm. uh, changed her – seemingly changed her mind on that. And, and a lot of folks were saying, well, that's just a, that's just a ruse. She, she still believes in the free trade and the, and the TPP and so forth. And if she would have been elected, she would have supported it and so forth. And it seems to me that's, that, that's the sort of uh, lie – I won't call it a noble lie, but sort of a lie that perhaps you, 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 know, you tell for what you think is the benefit of the public whether they believe it or not. Uh, right. So I think some of that's going on. I mean, so if you were to break down what fraction of politicians' lies are just to make their lives uh, to make their lives better versus to get better policy, I think probably the self-serving lies vastly outnumber yeah. the public-serving yeah. lies. Mm-hmm. But 
out of pol- out of good policies that happen, yeah, probably a lot of them are sustained by lies. You know, in your book, you suggest a few things that might help out more than uh, the education uh, type ideas that a lot of people have talked about. You mentioned you mentioned one thing just a few minutes ago, but some other things you mentioned in the book are uh, voter knowledge tests, uh, and we mm-hmm. talked about that a little bit, um, giving extra votes to high knowledge voters and uh-huh. and uh, even encouraging uh, economically literate people who are in positions of authorities to, to authority, sorry, to maybe try to listen a little bit less to the public. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm wondering, I, I liked certain aspects of this. Do you think there's a possibility that any of this, even in some small way, uh, might come about? Right. So giving extra votes to people who know more, I think that is an extreme long shot. I mostly talk about it just to hold up a mirror to people and ask them, why is this horrify you so much? What, why is it such a bad idea? Uh, for bureaucrats doing uh, giving the public what it needs instead of what it wants, I think this happens all the time. Well, you, I mean, yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah. that's that's already that's already a big deal. It's a big deal. It's been a big deal in the past. Will be a big deal in the future, probably. Well, I mean, the giving extra votes to people is kind of along the lines of giving people money, right? Trying to provide some sort of incentive for people to right. become informed, and presumably that uh, the way people would become informed—we're not talking about partisan type stuff. We're talking about general knowledge type things. So, for instance, if you understood how a bill becomes a law, you would know that one individual member of Congress doesn't have the great authority that you know one might think if they were less informed. Right. That sort of thing. Um, so if if it's really difficult for any of this to happen, I mean, are we – do you think we're doomed? Um, I definitely don't think we're doomed. That's good. Um, okay. You know, like, like, so um, the best way of judging what the world's going to be like in the future is to look like, like what it's been like in the past. So like, like you know, there's been a tremendous increase in living standards over the last two centuries. It's spread to the entire world practically now. We have marvelous technology. We have – and again, the technology isn't just to go and give us more goodies. It also connects us with other human beings in a way and it cures problems of loneliness and, and, depre- and, and depression and everything else. I just think about how sad it was growing up in the 80s all by myself. I didn't know anyone like you, Michael. There's no one to talk to. Right, There's no. no website to go to. So yeah. when I look at the world that my, that my nerdy kids have today, I say, wow, it's such a great time to be a nerd. But it's really a great time to be almost anyone who has in, who is interested in anything, curious about anything. So, you know, my, you know, doomed is doomed is wrong. Um, I I do think that the probability of nuclear war has gone up uh, quite a bit in percentage terms, although so with Trump's election, although I still think it's small. So maybe gone from 0.5 percent per four years to one percent per four years. That's scary, but still, you know, 99 percent chance that true horrors are avoided. Uh, you know, the way that I think about my book and, and all my work is. I'm not saying the world is bad. I'm saying the world is is just falling far short of potential. Things could be way better. You know, I, on that kind of are we doomed? Maybe I'm feeling particularly pessimistic. Not so much for, because of the election, though. I, I'm 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 uh, a bit disappointed in that. But more, I, I just finished uh, reading a book that you might be familiar with. I don't know by a guy named Martin Ford called Rise of the Robots, and it talks a lot about. <laughs> Uh, increasing productivity and and what that means and you know the idea in the traditional economy that when we have uh, when when old industries have gone away we've been able to educate people in the new jobs and so forth so the you know the horse the horseshoe makers 
and so forth would get new jobs in the auto plant or something like that. But there are, and Ford is one of these people, and there, there are more of them now, I think, in the past, who are arguing that we're seeing something different with technology. And part of the reason why, for instance, we're having such a weak economic recovery might be because while productivity can still go go up, that we're not seeing the same increase in good uh, high-paying jobs because increasingly we can do the, have the same amount of output with fewer jobs. And so naturally companies are just going to do that. And, and there's a lot of concern, at least in some quarters, of a, of a jobless future or at least a future where finding meaningful employment for people is going to be a problem. And then you can have a situation where perhaps people I – mean, some people have called Donald Trump a demagogue who – try to bring us back to the glorious 1950s, 1960s, and that, that ship is sailed. That's not possible. I mean, do you think that's overly pessimistic? Yeah, greatly overly pessimistic. I don't. I don't think there's actually any evidence that robots are cutting into human employment. Uh, that they have, or that they that they will. So you know, like you know, U.S. unemployment rate is back down to to historically low levels. Mm-hmm. You remember, like you know, we had a period like 25 years where I don't think unemployment was ever at five, at the at the current level. Uh, so I think it's more along the lines of this is a very vivid story that gets people excited and and, and worked up, but. In terms of the data, there's very very little sign of, of anything like this happening. Uh, you can talk about like what will the far future hold. I mean, my 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 uh, my the way that I approach problems is always to say the the future is likely to be like the past. That's not guaranteed. But again, there is a simple story about how there's always other things to do. Right? I mean, so think about the modern economy right now. If like if in 1850 you had told people that only that 98% of people wouldn't be farmers in the future. Because that's ridiculous. What else is there besides farming? Will right. people be will will we will like a fifth of people be priests? Will they be lawyers? Will they be doctors? Like what else is there to be other than to do other than farming? Of course, the answer is like when you're in a primitive situation, you can't really understand or foresee what's coming in the future. But there's always something because labor is valuable, and people think of things that you can do with labor. Um, and you know, like and of course, technological progress is always uneven. So the things where we get a lot of progress in. Humans move out of that into the areas where there's been relatively little progress, and then I say, "Oh, yeah, I'm not worried about that at all." Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear. I needed I needed to hear that. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, I just had a debate on robots with my colleague Robin Hansen a, a couple weeks ago. So even he will say that there's no sign of the robots doing anything yet. Well, that's that that's that's good to know. Yeah, that, that, that's a very. Uh, yeah, good but he said, "In the you know, eventually this will happen." Um, Based upon pure theory, but right, uh, right. Swallowed, but anyway, you know, like even the um, even Mr. Robot is not saying that the robots have made a made a noticeable difference so far. Well, that's that. Like I said, that, that is comforting. Uh, now back, I, we got a little off track, but I, I just I couldn't help but uh, ask you about that. Like I said, since I just finished that book, and here I am talking to an economist. I mean, um, but but on the rationality, an economist, uh, you know, some people might say, okay. People are irrational, but look at these supposedly rational economists who totally fail to see the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression. I mean, if that's rationality, you can have it. Uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I'd say experts are wrong all the time. There's a whole book called The Expert Speak, which is just uh, 800 pages of experts saying things that later proved out to proven to be wrong, often idiotically wrong. Uh, but notice there's no book called The Public Speaks. Because it wouldn't be funny to just have 800 pages of idiotic things that laymen have said. They say idiotic things all the time. It's always a question of comparison. 
and you know who is le- who is less bad, right? Who is, uh, and that's where I say the, you know that ex- experts generally do way better than the general public. Uh, you know there there is a uh, you know, so I don't I don't know if you, if you know the political scientist Philip Tetlock or you mm-hmm. probably do, but you know like he has a lot of work on the predictive abilities of experts, which is often misinterpreted as saying that experts can't predict the future. Whereas really what uh, his real conclusion is that experts are bad at predicting the future when they disagree with each other. Okay. <laughs> but, but if you ask about, yeah, so when experts are divided, experts aren't very predictive. Well, of course they aren't very predictive when they're divided because half say one thing and half say the other thing. So yeah, like the experts aren't very helpful. Right. But if you ask, ask, ask experts easier questions, then you often see consensus and that consensus is way more reliable than just asking the public who really don't know what they're talking about. So like, for instance, there's a consensus among uh, among economists on the benefits of free trade. That would be an example of, right? An ex, uh, yes, area and that's, that's one where you can get people, you know, as like I said, like 90% of people who can correctly explain the argument, which of course does not require agreement. You can correctly explain an argument you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And if you can correctly explain it, then you will all, all, almost always think that it's basically true. Okay. And now uh, moving to a different topic, uh, your book, The Case Against Education, is coming out next year. We've talked a little bit about education, um, mm-hmm. and, and I, I love the title. It sounds like another you know intriguing, contrarian argument because obviously the conventional wisdom, it's bipartisan, is that more education isn't just good. It's essential to growth and, and prosperity in the future. And so I'm wondering, do you, do you disagree with this, or, or can you give us a little preview of what we might uh, sure. be seeing in the book? Yeah, so the heart of the book is what is called the signaling model of education, which is a fancy phrase for a simple idea. And the simple idea is this. The main reason why education pays off the labor market isn't that teachers teach you useful job skills. The main reason why education pays off in the labor market is that you're showing off. You are getting certification. You are getting a seal of approval from your teachers, which then the labor market looks at and says, all right, well, this is a grade A worker. He's gone through. He's got his degree from MIT. Awesome. I'd like to hire that guy. Uh, now, of course, I, I freely admit that people learn some useful job skills in school, but my view is that probably about 80% of the payoff from education comes from the certification rather than from learning useful skills. Now, if this story is right, and again, when people think about what they actually have to learn in school, I find almost everyone says that this sounds right to them. Uh, so, you know, if that sounds right to you, mm-hmm. then this means that when you, well, like, like when the economy changes, the best pro- the best thing is probably not to go and send people to school for more years learning things they don't need to know. You know, the better thing is to get people working in the new industries where they can learn by doing, which is the way we really learn. You know, if you just think about how few job skills college students pick up, especially in most majors, and yet there's a whole bunch of jobs where they just want a, someone with a bachelor's degree in something or other. Right. right. And what's going on is you have to go through, you know, your, your 17 years of education, K through bachelor's degree, and then finally you can get a job and then they teach you how to do the job once you're done with school. That's right. when people generally learn how to do jobs, you know, not so much in school. So, do you, I mean, is it then that the, the education system kind of works to help kind of sort out in a, in a rough kind of way uh, potential or future workers for employers? And are you saying there's a, there's a better, less costly way to society to do that, to do that initial sorting? Yeah, of course. Well, the main thing to know is that Government at all levels, federal, state, and local, pours about a trillion dollars a year on the status quo. Yeah. So when someone people say, well, education has passed the market test, no, it hasn't. It is the biggest white elephant, the most subsidized industry you can imagine. So, I mean, like at minimum, let's see if we go and pull these subsidies away and let schools sink or swim. 
thinks it's extremely likely that you know, well, like, like almost certain that tuition will go up. When tuition goes up, fewer people will go. And here's the good news. If I'm right, this will have very little effect on the skill of workers. Rather, the main thing that's going to change is the credentials employers expect you to have to be worthy of an interview. Uh, there's actually been some really neat work that's that, that's been done uh, looking at the changing American job market over the last 60 years or so. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that, of course, over this period, jobs have changed and education has changed. Uh, so how much of the change in the job market can be explained by people doing more high cognition, uh, like high tech jobs? And how much of it is just explained by employers raising the credentials you need to be a waiter right. or an accountant or secretary? So it's like a... And, and, Oh, so, so it's like a credential creep sort of thing where yeah, – yes. and, and the punchline of this work uh, is you know, like, like three – I think there's like three different stu- overlapping studies of this whole period. Basically, it looks like about 80 percent of the change is just due to credential inflation. Wow. 80 percent of it is just simply due to the same job requiring more years of education than it used to and only about 20 percent from a realignment of the kinds of jobs we do into things that are more cognitively demanding and where you might at least think it's got something to do with form- formal training in school. Um, so, and again, like, you know, if we can, if, uh, pouring money in education can give us credential inflation, then taking it away should be able to give us credential deflation. Okay. So, so the argument, the argument then is that when you, when you subsidize something, the price goes up, as we've seen with education, mm-hmm. we subsidize yeah. education massively. And so if well, we take, if you, if, you, if, you, if you give people free money to spend on it, the price goes right, up. Right. And, and, and that's clearly, I mean, that, that seems to be, yeah. to me, to be pretty clearly what's sure. happened. And so you're saying that if we pull that money out, pull that subsidy out, once there's an initial shakeout and that shakeout might be mm-hmm. painful in the short term, mm-hmm. longer term, we're, we're likely to be better off to get the same results yeah. for less money. Yeah, I mean, people will just start life years earlier, like they did in the past. So instead of needing a bachelor's degree to get a job to be a, to be a waiter at Morton's, you'll be hired out of high school and trained and trained for it. I mean, what's the difference? Well, once the pool of of uh, kids with bachelor's degrees is dried up, employers get a lot less picky. And, and and I mean, especially if all you're looking for is people who are in the top third of the distribution. When the whole distribution shifts down, the people in the top third can just have a lot less uh, a lot less time in school. Hmm. Well, that that that's a that that's an intriguing argument. Obviously, one that yeah. I'm not necessarily uh, eager to see play out uh, during yeah, my well, career. It's but... Terrible for me. I like to think that some grateful billionaire will endow a chair for me to Harvard if people listen to me. But uh, I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I mean, I, like yeah. I'm saying, the very fact I don't think people listen listen to me is is a lot of what spurs me on to be totally candid. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I share that. I think, you know, well, I also have the, the fantasy of the, of the, maybe that same billionaire endowing the, the politics guys, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, uh, anyway, um, you know, one more thing, I know we're kind of running a little bit late, but, um, there's a question I'd like to ask everyone I have on the show is, uh, what books aside from yours, of course, which I think everyone should, should check out or, or websites or blogs or other mm-hmm. politics or economics information, uh, sources, would you recommend to listeners who, well, for rational reasons or not, would would like to be better informed uh, economically or politically? Yeah. So, my favorite book to recommend is by philosopher Michael Humer. It's called The Problem of Political Authority. Uh, it is, if you, you know, it is one of the best written books in philosophy that you will ever read. You know, like every sentence is clear. You don't need to have a lot of background in order to understand it. Wow. But it's just about like you know. He has one of the, one of the great logical minds in the world. 
Uh, I say he, he is my favorite philosopher. He has a lot of books, actually. All his books are great, but this is the one that is uh, special, especially my, my very favorite. Uh, yeah, so I think I will, ra- rather, rather than over- overload people, say, you know, that book, that book is the bomb. That's great. Okay, well, we will definitely put a, put a link to that. And as well, we'll put a link to your, uh, the, the YouTube cartoon video of you explaining the, the biases. Yeah, there's, all, there's, four, there's four, four cartoons for four biases. Oh, well, we're definitely going to have to link to that. Absolutely. Well, uh, on, that, on that much more upbeat note, uh, I just want to thank you so much, Professor Kaplan, for taking the time to talk to me today. Fantastic talking to you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. You can follow us throughout the week on Twitter. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us.